You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Maps. Now, one of the huge benefits of Onyx Maps is being able to save an area, a land area, as a map. Then, when you don't have any mobile data, you don't have any phone service, you can use your phone's GPS on a very high-quality, digitally-enhanced map with the topo lines, with the satellite imagery, and it's like you're able to navigate on that map just by saving it to your phone. And the GPS little dot, the blue dot on there leads the way. You're still able to drop waypoints and uh, leave, you know, make a trail and all those things. Uh, we did that when I went to South Dakota. Didn't have any phone service out in the hills, and I was able to save a map and go off the saved map and it's something that is it truly saves time it makes you more efficient and it allows you to really focus on what you're there to do and that's find and kill an animal so if you want to find out more information about onyx please visit onyxmaps.com if you want to download the the service download the app go ahead and use the discount code NATION20. That's going to save you 20% off for all new customers. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast, the number one source for hunting and fishing information, strategy and tactics, as well as conversations surrounding conservation efforts and other outdoor activities in the great state of Iowa. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and this episode of the Iowa Sportsman Podcast starts right now. All right, everybody, and welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today we are again continuing with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources theme, and we're going to be talking with Todd, and Todd is a wildlife biologist who specializes in upland game species and the environment. In this episode, we talk about CRP, the history of CRP, and why is why it is important to enroll some of these uh, non-fertile, less productive ag, you know, acres back into the CRP program and what it does for the ecosystem. We talk about pheasants, we talk about quail, we talk a little bit about jackrabbits and predators and um, prairie chickens and and the ecosystem and the vegetation uh, that these upland game species call home. So it's a really exciting episode. Hopefully you guys are liking this, uh, this series that we're doing here. And if you guys want to recommend any departments within the Iowa Department of Natural Resources that you feel would make for a great podcast or an idea that you think would make for a great podcast here on the episode of the Iowa Sportsman, uh, go to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, hit me up, or excuse me, the Nine Finger Chronicles Instagram page, hit me up, or go to the Iowa Sportsman Facebook page and uh, you can request it there as well. Other than that, uh, before we get into this episode, we got to do a commercial, as always, and we got to remind you about our good friends over at 
Bondurant Custom Furniture. Uh, these guys are making some high quality uh, customized furniture and one of their specialties is they take old whiskey barrels and they refurbish them into beautiful furniture, tables, chairs, uh, clocks, artwork, all the, uh, you name it, they're, they're doing it. So head on over to BondurantCustomFurniture.com and check out their photo gallery. It'll blow your mind. Now, let's, uh, I think we're done with the intro. Let's just get right into today's episode. In three, two, one. All right, keeping with the Department of Natural Resources wildlife biologist theme, today we are talking with wildlife biologist Todd Bogenschutz. How you doing, man? Pretty good. How are you, Dan? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm exciting. I, for some reason, I like uh, talking with the experts on a particular field in the um, in the state of Iowa about you know all the critters that run around in this state. So, first off, I want to ask you the question: What is your specialty here in the state of Iowa? So, my title is upland game research biologist. So, I work basically on Mainly on the non-migratory upland game species, so you know basically the critters that you typically find in our our farmland country, our open farmland country. So pheasants, quail, Hungarians, cottontails. Uh, do work a little bit with morning doves, prairie chickens, um, also our jackrabbits. Not that we have many jackrabbits left, but those are the kind of the critters that I'm tasked with uh, responsibility for, or some responsibility for, and then. I also serve as our ag liaison to USDA conservation policy, um, okay. basically because programs like uh, CRP obviously influence our upland game populations quite a bit. Right, right. And uh, I heard that, uh, or I, I believe you sent me some information on the the new there's been some changes to how CRP is being issued or renewed. Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, the, the CRP program is a USDA program, the Conservation Reserve, CRP for short. Um, you know, basically the the nexus of the program is landowners are paid uh, a, a, an annual soil rental rate to retire, you know, marginal lands or less productive lands. Um, so we're looking at basically fields that uh, – don't yield, yield very well. They're highly erodible. They're next to streams. Um, you know, we're trying to filter some of the chemicals out with CRP. The grasses do a great job of cleaning up the water. And and so, you know, that's what CRP has been targeted to. Um, the CRP is renewed every five years by Congress through the Farm Bill. And so, you know, nationally, CRP has a cap. We can only enroll. It had been I believe 24 million acres nationwide. Um, it's, it has been as high as 36 million acres, so they've dialed it back. Um, this farm bill, they bumped it up another million acres, um, which is good. You know, we'd like to see it even higher than that, but, um, you know, I'll take a million over none. Um, they did add a grassland component, a couple, couple million acres to that, which is different than the CRP that we traditionally think of most hunters think of crp as you know that land that's set aside seeded down it's good cover 
the new grassland option they put in CRP, they're allowed to hay it and graze it and, and uh, mow it. So um, <clears throat> it's kind of more of a working grassland CRP. So <clears throat> hasn't seen a lot of interest in Iowa because the fact that you can hay it or graze it, they've reduced the rental rate. Ah, I it's see. paid on it. And so it's not quite as attractive to landowners, let's say, most of them. At okay. least in Iowa. So we haven't seen a lot of it here, but you know, you'll hear people say, Well, the cap's been raised to twenty seven million. Yes, it has, but only twenty five million of it is the classic CRP that we think of. Okay. The extra two million or more of this grassland. So just wanted to put that out there because people will say, Well, you said it's only twenty five and they're saying it's twenty seven. <laughs> I'm like, Well, it is, but <laughs> there's a different uh a different versioning of it. Yes. Okay. So I have a question. Do you happen to know the history behind uh, the CRP program in the United States? Sure. So the CRP came about uh, in 1985, and it was kind of in response to the farm crisis in the early 80s. Um, you know, in the, in, the, in the 1970s, you know, we were going to feed the world, and, uh, you know, the USDA pushed, you know, we need to farm every acre, and and that kind of cut up to farm prices and, and, you know, prices plunged with all the excess production. And, you know, that's what led to the farm crisis in the early 80s. So the 85 farm bill came about, uh, you know, let's let's take some of this cropland out of production, try to target it to the, the environmentally sensitive land and kind of to help bolster prices. So when the program started, there wasn't really a conservation nexus with it i mean it, it obviously created good habitat but that wasn't what initially brought it about it was really low crop prices and so much land being in production but that changed fairly soon you know when we saw some of the wildlife response to it and so they started doing things like establishing an ebi in it the environmental benefit index and so you know crp that was seeded to a nicer mix of natives rather than like bluegrass or fescue, which is not really great wildlife cover, got more points. And so then it started taking an environmental kind of stint too. I mean, it's it's still about retiring environmentally sensitive land and, and keeping the porous land out of production, improving water quality. I mean, that side of it is still there and always will be, but there is this component on the conservation side, which is nice. And so after the first, 15 to 20 years of the program i'm trying to think they brought the continuous program in so there's always been a general sign up that's how it started so landowners make an offer you compete nationally you get a score if you're above the cutoff you're in the program if you're below the cutoff you're out of you, you know you're not accepted so that's how the general works it's kind of like a a, a bidding option you know you put your make your offer and you know if you're above the cutoff line then then you're accepted they decided, you know, that for things, water quality is very important, and they're worried about soil erosion. You know, we've had high nitrogen levels in some of our waterways in Iowa. So I think around the 2002 Farm Bill, they started the continuous CRP. And so that was targeted at very specific kind of smaller acreages. So the general sign-up, you could enroll whole fields. There was usually one sign up a year, every couple years, and you know you had about a month and a half window to make your offer, and and you were done for the year. The continuous sign up 
they targeted the streams and wetlands. So they wanted to put grass where they knew it would have the biggest impact on water quality and chemicals coming into our water and erosion along streams. So very targeted. A lot of times the acreages weren't very big, 40 acres or less. Um, so the continuous was, you know, if you've got farmland and you've got a creek that runs through it and you want to put a buffer on that creek, you know, 30 feet, 60 feet, 100 feet on either side of the creek, um, you could come in the continuous. If you, you know, if you had the creek there, you were eligible, they'd sign you up. They'd pay a maximum rental rate any day of the year. Open right. 365. So that came about, and that's kind of how CRPs run since, you know, of course, General came in 85, continuous about 2002. And so they've, they've made little tweaks to it since then, uh, but it's pretty much that same way. Okay. But they hadn't had a general sign up for four years until this spring. So there was a lot of people that, you know, CRP is a 10-year contract. So people 10 years ago, you know, their contracts are expiring. And so basically what USDA was doing was giving a one-year extension at the old rental rate um, that they had 10 years ago. So, you know, that kind of frustrates landowners a little bit, you know, because rental rates tend to generally through time go up. Um, so it's great that they have announced this sign-up. The sign-up currently runs through the end of February is the last day to sign up. So producers have all January and February of 2020 here to to make an offer in the general. They also opened the continuous because um, it had been closed as well. So that's good news. The changes they've made is, um, like I said, you're paid a rental rate to retire your land for the 10-year contract. So the National Ag Statistics Service, which is part of USDA, they basically do a survey every year and ask landowners what they're paying, you know, if they're renting crop ground. And so they come up with a county rental rate. You know, here's what the average farmer in this county is paying to rent land to farm. And so the CRP rental rates then based off that. Now, the interesting thing was in prior farm bills, they kind of based it on a three-year average um, <clears throat> of when they had data. So, like, USDA doesn't have data for 2020. They have data that they got in 2019. And in the past, they'd use data from 2018 and 2017 and come up with kind of an – which is, is not a bad way to do it, but when prices fluctuate, it can kind of be behind. So, like uh, – <clears throat> Well, before, right around 2012, 13, 14, when corn hit $8 a bushel, we had the drought. Um, they were using three-year-old rental rates, and landowners were kind of getting out of the CRP because cash rents kind of followed what was being paid for corn, $8 corn, right? and CRP wasn't, wasn't paying that. So that kind of gave them the impetus in this last farm bill to kind of lower the cap because they were saying landowners weren't interested we don't need that many acres but then that bubble kind of went away you know our our producers in the country are pretty good about responding to prices so they right right so crp was basically kind of looking back at when the prices were really good and so a whole bunch of people wanted to get into crp then because it was paying better than 
So that led Congress to kind of tamp down the rental rates. So historically with CRP, you got paid 100% of whatever your county average was. So say you're up in Webster County and the average is 243. If your soils were, you know, good soils, you got paid 243 an acre. If your soils were lower quality, you got paid some fraction less. If your soils were higher quality, you got paid a little bit more. Well, this time around with this farm bill, they've now kind of taken away the soil productivity above one. So if you got really good soils, they won't multiply it up a little bit. They're just going to pay average soils. Okay. And if you got low quality, low quality soils, they will still knock you down. But if you got high quality, so that's a change. And that, to me, that's important because a lot of our filter strips and our wetland practices tend to be on better soils. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if our landowners are willing to take that cut and run away. Wow. So that's one little tweak they made. The other tweak they made is for general CRP, instead of paying 100%, they're only going to pay 85% of whatever Mass said the average was. So that that's an additional hit. Continuous, they're going to pay 90%. So not as big a hit as on general. So there's really two hits that are going in on crop prices right now or the rental rate that people get for CRP. And so I'm concerned, our staff are concerned that, you know, we're asking our landowners, you know, they're out there, they're trying to make a living on the land. They understand that there's impacts to things like water quality um, from farming. And I think most of our landowners want to do the right thing, but you know, they, it is their livelihood. I mean, they've got to make fair compensation with it. And so I guess we'll see how this sign-up goes. <clears throat> this is, you know, this is all coming. This is the first time they've ever done this to CRP in the history of the program. They've always paid 100%. Now they've knocked it back to 85 for general sign-up and 90% for continuous sign-up. Okay. Plus they changed those soil productivity factors. So... We're super excited that, you know, we finally got another sign up here because we got a lot of landowners that were interested in, in getting their land back into CRP or re-enrolling. Um, but I'm concerned, you know, when they start hearing the prices, what what's going to happen? They may just say, uh, I'll just rip it all up and farm it again. Yeah. So, you know, if that occurs, that's obviously not good for our... <laughs> our upland game populations yeah absolutely now let me that all that information that you just mentioned is kind of uh is good to know and i feel that's a great foundation for what we're now going to be talking about and that is the ecosystem and the environmental uh side of crp and the upland um, game populations and and how those uh, coexist but before we make that big transition, I want to ask the question from a natural uh, side of things, from an ecosystem side of things, what are the benefits of putting ground back into CRP, back into its native uh, vegetation and uh, plant life? Well, I mean, so CRP is really targeted at soil, water, and wildlife. You know, that's the co-equal the co purposes of the CRP. 
So anytime, you know, you're annually tilling ground, you know, there's a good portion of the year where it's just bare dirt. And, uh, you know, we get decent rainfall here. And so if you've got any slope to the land, we can have erosion and uh, water moving across the landscape. And, and that water can pick up things like nitrogen and phosphorus. And we put a lot of those chemicals on the farm ground to, to grow our crops the way we do. So when you put grass there, it kind of stops that overland flow of water. Of course, it stops erosion instantly when you seed something down rather than till it. So erosion goes almost to zero. And then with those plant roots going down there, especially if you use native plants, where the roots go down six, eight, ten feet, you have much better infiltration of the water into the soil. And so any of the chemicals or nutrients that are in the water get filtered out by the soil, acts like a big sponge, and by the time it gets to the waterway, it's basically clean again, which is a good thing. So, right. And, of course, for birds, anytime you have undisturbed grassland out there, that's that's really what they need. They need a secure place to nest in the spring. They need secure cover in the summertime to raise their chicks. And, of course, you know, we get some pretty good winters here, so, you know, we need something on the landscape, residual grass, you know, so they can survive the winter. And, you know, because many of our upland game species don't migrate, they have to stay here all year. So you need that winter cover as well to get them through to the next year. So that's kind of in a nutshell, the, the real benefits of, you know, seeding something down to a grass. Gotcha. All right. So now let's talk about the species that you actually cover uh, and in research and observe throughout uh, the year. So, like I said, I'm mainly responsible for our upland game species. So uh, I coordinate our um, August roadside survey. That's the one survey that we do statewide annually um, to counter upland game. Basically, we count all the pheasants, quail, partridge, cottontails, and jackrabbits that we see along these routes. The roadside survey was established and actually started in Iowa in the 1930s. Um, It's changed some over time, but basically since 1962 on, um, it's been run the same way. So it's a pretty long-term data set. Yeah. Over 50 years now. So basically, what is the roadside survey? We have about two routes in each county. They're 30 miles long. They're basically on gravel. Staff are told to run them the first two weeks of August and count everything they see along the route. So generally, the same staff run the route every year. They run it the same direction. And they're told to run it on a morning with a heavy dew, uh, no wind and hopefully the sun is shining. We ask them to do that then because most of our upland game species don't like to be wet. And so if there's a heavy dew and the sun's shining and it's not too windy so they feel comfortable, they'll be at the roadsides. They basically just loaf on the edge, you know, waiting for the cover to dry off before they begin to feed for the day. We pick August because by that time the pheasant broods, quail broods, hun broods, they should be half to three quarters grown. Um, hands are comfortable bringing them out in the open. You know, when they're little powder puffs, they pretty much stay hidden, stay out of cover. But by the time they're partially grown, the hens are, are not so leery about bringing them out in the open. So it just gives us a great way to index the population. Okay. I mean, there's no way for us to count 
all the pheasants out there, all the cottontails. It's just not possible. Right. But with this survey, you know, we can get a really good index as to how many birds per mile did we see or how many birds did we see on a route. And that gives us a real good index to what the population is doing from year to year. So like I said, we have two two routes in every county, 30 miles long. So we drive over 6,000 miles statewide okay. to come up with our numbers. So it gives us a pretty good pretty good trend indicator. Is there a, an equation that you put in, uh, you know, put to work when, let's say, you drive down a road and you say, okay, well, we saw five pheasants on today's route. That equals an estimated X number of birds within this county or this section or whatever? No, there's a lot of noise uh, in the data, and you try to kind of tamp that down by running as many routes as we do, you know, because the roadside counts, you know, our staff can get out there and start a route, and then a mile in front of them, somebody pulls out of their house and drives three miles down the road to the office. You know, they're going to work <laughs> and they just push the birds off the road. And our guys are coming right behind them five minutes later. Yeah. There's just no way to account for all those kinds of things. So we just run a massive number of routes and, and, you know, that can't happen to everybody. And so there isn't really a way for us to, because there can be so much variability from count to count. And a matter of fact, that's why we generally don't publish the data by county because, you know, if you really wanted to know what was going in a county, we'd probably need to survey five, six times as many roads as we do. So we just basically summarize the data down to a region like the Northwest, the North Central. So 10, 10, 12 counties. So then we're starting, you know, looking at 20 to 30 routes. You know, and that gives us some, you know, we're pretty confident with that average, you know, right. a route or two may be messed up, but, you know, there should be a bunch that aren't and, and gives us uh, more confidence with the right. data. So, no, there's no, but what we can do is we do survey small, I survey small game hunters after the season and ask them, you know, how many birds they harvested. And so we can plot the roadside counts versus what hunters say they harvested because i mean all those hunters out there in the fall are basically another survey of the population yeah and so you know if i send out the card you know so we can compare them so actually you know i can kind of make a prediction of what our pheasant harvest is going to be when the roadside counts done because we plot those two lines over time and uh, usually i can estimate our pheasant harvest usually plus or minus a hundred thousand roosters or so um, just because we've got, you know, data from both data sets for, since the 1960s. Okay. So outside of the roadside survey, do you guys do any other uh, trapping or netting or any other research projects uh, throughout the state that help you get a better idea of, of the, the population health of any of these upland species? Um, so our research projects are more focused on, um, so the, the roadside survey and the small game harvest survey of hunters after the season are kind of our two statewide surveys to kind of track populations of pheasant quail park. You know, we ask about all of them uh, and we count them on uh, the roadside survey as well. So our research projects tend to be more targeted. So 
we just wrapped up a growing count survey of our CRP pheasant safe project, um, kind of evaluating how many crowing roosters we heard on our pheasant safe CRP versus just general CRP or areas without CRP, just to document the benefits. Um, <clears throat> we are doing a current research project with Iowa State looking at the roadside counts and trying to so we tell staff to try to run the roadside routes with a heavy dew, but sometimes, you know, staff have a day they have to do it and the dew isn't heavy. And so we're trying to maybe develop some correction factors for those mornings when they have less dew because birds don't come to the roadside, so they don't get as good a count. So we're trying to prove on some of our methodology there. So that would be a couple examples of uh, some research we've done. Um, our last big research project on pheasants was from 1990 to 94. We did a study in uh, north central Iowa where we captured 100 wild hens a year for five years. So 500 wild hens over the course of the project and just looked at habitat use and survival of the hens, nest success, chick survival. You know, just to look at what factors really drove the population. Um, you notice I didn't mention roosters. Um, we're not too interested in the roosters. They don't lay eggs. They, you know, your pheasant population is determined by your hens. You know, they've got to survive the winter. They've got to successfully nest. They've got to successfully raise the chicks. If they do, you're going to have a lot of roosters that fall. Um, yeah. Most, most small game has a short life cycle. You know, based on that research we did up there, any given year, 80% uh, of the population is probably young of the year, less than a year old. 20% of the population is going to be a year older. That was with our hands. So there's high turnover. That's probably not a surprise. Same thing with cottontail, same thing with, with quail. Um, you know, that's just the nature of their bees. There's a lot of mortality. Uh, with those populations, and so their answer to that is to have big nests, you know, 10, 12 eggs, um, and produce a lot of young, and hopefully a couple make it to next year. Yeah. And so with that, with that, we call that kind of an R-selected species. Um, you know, they're short-lived, but they make a lot of young. And, I mean, that's what we call them, a scientific community, is R-selected. So, and so that's why you can see the population really go up quickly, you know, things are, habitat's good and weather's good, and then you can also see it plummet rather quickly if habitat and weather's not good, um, because that's kind of the nature of the population. They're, you know, they're geared to produce a lot of young, and if something doesn't go right, then the population can go down fairly quickly. So, okay. kind of in a nutshell, how the population cycle and, and some of the research we've done. So we learned all those things from some of that research, so... Um, actually, we're toying with the idea of starting a project right now to look at burning and its impact on, on habitat. Um, it's a question our managers have. Um, we know burning does good things for our native grasses, um, and we know that it can kind of control cedars. Um, but we have a lot of woody invasion other than cedar in some of our grasslands. And so we want to see, does fire really kill those woodies or does it just set it back and then they're coming and growing again the next year yeah and then there's questions about we always burn in the spring it's 
just convenient for us. You know, a lot of the ground's plowed, but there's some research kind of suggesting that maybe a late summer burn or a fall burn would be better in some cases. Yeah. Um, and we're also trying to figure out, you know, what, what impact does burning have on insects in that grassland? Um, you know, does timing impact that? Because bugs are important, um, you know, for the chicks because it's their primary food source. Um, but, you know, we're also having issues with monarchs and pollinators are becoming a big issue. And so, you know, we want to try to get our management so we're not impacting those species as well. Yeah. So what is kind of a worst case scenario? Because I've heard people talk about a lot of ice and lots of uh, bad winters have a big uh, effect on the specifically the birds like pheasants and quail because their nostrils are on the top of their beak and they could get freeze frozen shut or you know high amounts of moisture in the air what what is the actual worst case scenario for an upland uh, species like a pheasant or quail so that's where we're using the roadside count data again Um, like i said we have a half century of data now so we can plot that roadside count information against long-term NOAA data for Iowa. And so when we do that, we kind of come up with some thresholds um, in the wintertime with maybe one or two exceptions. The counts have always gone down when we have winters that have 30 inches of snow or more. Okay. So that seems like a threshold to me. And Generally, our counts almost always go up without too many exceptions if we have winter with less than 20 inches. And I define winter as December 1st to March 31st, so that's okay. a four-month period. We can also look at spring rainfall during the peak of the nesting season, April and May. Um, and when we look at the data, without too many exceptions, if April and May have more than eight inches of rain, our counts have almost always gone down. Now, if we have an April-May where the rainfall is less than six inches, they almost always seem to go up or remain stable. So, again, another another threshold there, both sides of it. So, you know, I can make a prediction, you know, at the end of March, I'll look at the NOAA data and see what our snowfall was for the winter. And then... When we get into early June, I'll pull the NOAA data for April and May, and I can almost predict whether our pheasant counts are going to be up or down just looking at that data. Okay. Now, we also we did that big telemetry project with hens and putting radios on that I just talked about, those 500 hens. You know, we, we looked at the impacts there, too, and basically they matched up similarly to what we see on the roadside count. So that's generally what I tell, tell our hunters, you know, if we have a mild winter without a lot of snow and we have a warm relatively dry april may you know our counts are probably going to go up and if we have a snowy winter or a cold wet may you know our counts are probably going to go down habitat didn't change at all in the state you know that's just the impacts of weather and so what's going on there Uh, in the winter time we're just losing hens uh, the less hens you've got to nest in the spring, you know, you, you start the winter with 10 hens, 
and you only come out with two. Um, yeah, you know, that's not good. Go Those, up much. Yeah, that, that's not, not good, good state uh, data. No, you know, but if you start the winter with 10 hens and you, you finish it with eight, you're coming into the nesting season pretty good, you know, potential for reproduction. Now you get into the nesting season, you know, if only 10% of your nest hatch, 20%, dang, you're very good. But, you know, 50, 60% of your nest hatch, that's pretty good. Right. So, so from a predator standpoint, um, birds, you know, the, these pheasants and quail, maybe even some uh, jackrabbits and, or some rabbits and whatnot, what are the biggest predators of these upland species? Uh, from our five-year telemetry project up there, I think it worked out. Uh, we figured about 80% of predation was mammalian and uh, 20% was avian. Um, when you just look at, there was also some nest loss due to mowing and, you know, don't farm dogs or cats or something, but we don't figure is you know, naturally related, so to speak. So, so yeah, it seemed like the avian predators, when we got kind of a bad winter and, you know, habitat become limited and the birds concentrate what's left sometimes, that's usually around shelter belts and stuff and in woody cover. And so the avian predators can seemingly be a little more effective in those conditions if there's an other good grassland habitat. The mammalian predators were kind of what got birds year-round. Um, so, and there's a host of, wasn't, it's not super easy when you find a predated bird or a predated nest to determine um, what exactly the predator is, you know, so maybe you find eggs with tooth marks in it. Okay, was that a fox or a mink or a coyote or you know it's, it's sometimes you know when you find a carcass and there's just some bones left um you know it's really hard to exactly determine what predators are but you know the the predators that we thought we could identify fairly readily were mainly fox and coons and, and ground squirrels and, and mink and and those kinds of things there's been some some research not done in Iowa, but done in other states where they actually put some cameras on nests and, and they actually found snakes um, take actually a fair number of eggs. Huh. Um, so, you know, something that a lot of people don't normally think about. Yeah, very interesting. Um, you know, and I think with chicks, it's going to be a similar suite of mammalian predators. Gotcha. Um, so right. we were actually doing some work with some chicks here at the office trying to look at, uh, you know, what kind of insects they eat and their foraging efficiency and stuff. And uh, we had a brood of our chicks just happened to bumble onto a, a, a wasp nest, you know, in the ground. And the wasp came out and killed two or three of them. Oh, <laughs> you know, chicks just didn't know any better. And, you know, I looked at my tech and I'm like, well, whoever thought wasps would kill pheasants, <laughs> but right. they hadn't seen it with our own eyes. So, you know. After having these conversations with all of you, you know, wildlife biologists, it's crazy how brutal nature is and how unforgiving nature is. You know, you, you think of something as innocent as a, you know, a, as a baby pheasant or a baby quail, right? A, a chick like that. And, you know, they obviously have to worry about cats and they have to worry about coyotes and you know snakes and all this stuff and then something like that that i would have never thought of 
right? Like they they came up they came upon a wasp nest in the ground, and that's that's what did them in. It's amazing how yeah. you know nature is how unforgiving that that is. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, you know it's kind of their you know in our selected species they they know they're going to have a lot of deaths and. The way you counter that is you make a lot of little ones. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, I think bluegills, you know, any of our kind of smaller species are, are kind of that way. Yeah. You know, to, to give your viewers the other spectrum, you know, that's kind of the R-selected species. And then you have more of a K-selected species, which would be like us humans. We don't have a lot of young, but we invest a lot of our personal resources in making sure those young you know, survive and, and get to adulthood. So, so you could think of, um, you know, deer and bear and, you know, our bigger species are more case selected. And so they only have one or two young instead of, you know, a dozen at once. And, and so just different philosophies, you know, evolution led to. And so most of our small game are more, are selected. Um, I think there's one of my counterparts in Missouri that, that said pheasants and quail, they're, they suck at living, but they're great at reproducing. <laughs> <laughs> God, I would hate to have that label as any animal. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to live very long, but good thing uh, you guys put out a lot of babies. Yeah, and so, you know, knowing that, knowing how to populate, you know, that's kind of why we do research to to figure out what drives the populations. And, and so, obviously, we've got to get the hens through the winter, and so they need that good habitat. And then, you know, we've got to make sure they have good nesting and brood cover. So if they do make the winter that they've got, you know, and so it's our habitat goals are, you know, let's keep them alive and, and then let's make sure they have good uh, good nesting habitat if they make it through the winter. Because like I said, 80% of the birds are probably less than a year old. Yeah. Most pheasants are only going to reproduce once in their lifetime. So it's not like they have infinite knowledge of what to do or anything. And so... Let's try to put the best habitat we can out there and, and let them take advantage of it. Yeah. What is the best habitat uh, for these upland game species? So I'll go back to our pheasant safe. You know, that was a special project within CRP. And so I like to describe it as we put the bedroom, living room, and the kitchen all in the same field. The bedroom, you need good winter cover. You got to get them through the winter. So that means switchgrass, something that stands up really tall, even to our, our wet snows um, or heavy snow. And, you know, if you want to do conifers or shrubs, that's our best winter cover, eight rows. And then we want a food plot right by it. We don't want the birds going out in the open, having to feed. You know, if we can keep them in cover, that just keeps them protected, reduces their predation. They don't have to travel as far. So that's what I mean when I say that the bedroom, and that's also the kitchen, the food plot, keeping it right close. The living room would be your nesting cover, so the rest of the field is put into a nice diverse mix of grasses and, and forbs. So the hens you know, need good grassy cover. That's usually where they put their nests. And, of course, for our chicks, um, the first couple weeks of life, eight weeks of life, their diet's almost exclusively insects. Um, these birds grow rapidly. There are powder puffs that hatch. About 12 days later, they can make short flights. I mean, that's just tremendous growth. That's crazy. Uh, and they need high, 
high protein diets to, you know, to grow that kind of feather, to grow that bone muscle mass. And so the forbs in our grassland and seedings are just really attractive to insects. So, I mean, we have insects in our grasslands too, don't get me wrong, but we just have a much more diverse suite of insects when you can have a, a diverse and grass board mix. We try to maintain some bare ground in some of it because when chicks hatch, you know, they're only the size of a golf ball. I mean, so if you've got head-high switchgrass, it's kind of hard for them to navigate around in that. You know, so you get that forb component out there. Um, I say think about alfalfa, you know, as, as, as a visual for people and, and lay down and put your head right on the ground because that's what the chick's seeing. So when you have forbs in there, you know, they tend to put stems up and leaves on the top, so that makes it open underneath so the chicks can move around through there and, and catch the bugs because it's too thick and the chicks can't get around. They can't catch a lot of bugs. So, you know, that's why you see our managers trying to do burns on our properties about every three to five years. Um, because with Iowa soils, you know, you can do a seeding and by year three, it's getting pretty thick and there's a lot of thatch on the ground. You know, if you burn it, you take it back to bare ground, you kind of rejuvenate the grasses and you reset the clock on it. And so, you know, it makes good habitat for the birds. And I mean, it's a question we get quite a bit from from some of our hunters, you know, they'll see us burning one of our, oh, you're destroying all the habitat. And we're like, well, you try to burn before the nests are started. Uh, we understand that, but we also understand that if we want to keep this good habitat, it's got to have some kind of management like that. Yeah. And uh, burning is one of the best tools we have. How often do you recommend or do you guys do a burn is it is it one of those things where every year would be the best or do you have to let these plant roots get established for x amount of years before it becomes um, ideal so when we're doing a brand new seeding into crop ground um <clears throat> especially if you're doing natives um you seed it the first year first spring you probably want to mow it three or four times to about six eight inches because our native grasses are putting all their effort into roots, into the ground. They're putting a little bit above ground to capture sunlight, but they're focusing on establishing their feet in the ground. Usually the second year, you'll see more of the above ground growth um, by the natives. Um, you may need to do a mowing there. I mean, the reason you do the mowing is you need that sunlight to get down there because Iowa's soils are, are full of weed seeds and they grow early, they grow quickly. If you don't mow it, they'll shade out those natives, which aren't growing very high the first year. Second year, they've got good feet. They should compete very well. You might need to mow it again, but a lot of times you don't. just depends on the year and the rainfall and those kinds of things. Um, usually by the third year, you should have a pretty good stand. And uh, we generally, you know, our native grasses were here with bison. And what were the two things that Iowa had before white men got here? Fire and grazing. That's what kind of made Iowa what it is. So our native plants are pretty, are very adapted to fire because it's what they evolved with. And so usually in year four, five, or six for like CRP, we're saying that's when you should think about burning. Once you get it established, um, our staff, like I said, burn about most of our wildlife areas are on a three to five year rotation somewhere in there. And so... Like I said, with Iowa soils, they're fairly productive. Uh, a lot of times by year three, if 
three years ago you did something with the thatch layers getting pretty thick, the dead vegetation on the ground, and uh, you start to smother out your forbs, the grasses tend to dominate. And so if you burn it in year three or year four, um, you can reset the clock, and then you're just kind of on that cycle as long as you want to maintain that grassland. Okay. Our managers try to not burn, you know, if we have a 600-acre wildlife area, we don't burn all 600 acres. Um, You know, they'll burn of it or 300 of it so you know you want to leave a place for the birds to go to um because you're burning it you're going to take it black you know say we're doing our burn in april um but you know our temperatures are warming at that point and that vegetation that you burned will be a green flush of beautiful cover and they'll actually be able to probably do second or third nests in that cover but you don't want to destroy all the cover you want to give those birds a place to go so right on all right, so I want to talk about a success story, um, maybe on a species that might not be that well known. You know, not your not your quail, not your uh, your pheasants, or, or I guess rabbits even, because prairie chickens, right? They correct me if I'm wrong, but they almost went bye bye in the state of Iowa. But it sounds like they've either come back or they've made a a resurgence. No, they were extirpated from Iowa. Our okay. last known wild wild prairie chicken was nineteen fifty two. Oh, down okay. in south south central Iowa. Last record we, we ever had of one. Um <clears throat> they were super abundant at settlement. Uh, if you read some of the early accounts, um prairie chickens black in the sky. I mean they were the upland bird in Iowa. Um, so, and, you know, brought a lot of our, our, uh, forefathers and mothers <laughs> through probably bad winters way back when, but, um, you know, there are species that likes, uh, wide open grasslands, uh, very little timber, um, large expanses. Um, and so when we settled Iowa, you know, Iowa was mainly a prairie state. Of course, we came in and started farming small grains and corn um and of course we had livestock horses for how we how we got the farm work done and cattle and so prairie chickens evolved on native grasses with fire and bison and so when we first came here and we put some of these grains out there like corn and wheat and oats um scattered here and there prairie chickens probably even exploded higher because of that quality food source we were putting out there but you know, as we plowed up more of the grasslands, of course, it caught up and and chickens plummeted until they finally went extinct when we pretty much plowed up the whole state. So, but we did bring some prairie chickens back from Nebraska and, and uh, Kansas uh, as an agency and released them oh, around the time CRP started, mid-80s, early 80s. We let some go in western Iowa out to... Uh, Oh, I'm trying to think of the town out there, um, right along the Lus Hills, um, kind of Denison area, a little bit west and north. And then we also let some go down in south-central Iowa, down by Mount Air, kind of the last area we had some reported. Um, the birds up there in the Lus Hills held on for a few years, but uh, they kind of winked out. But the birds down there by Mount Air obviously uh, established a lek, kind of their breeding breeding grounds, and uh We've had them there ever since. Um, 
we'd like to see them increase more than they have, but we seem to maintain a population of around, well, I'd say somewhere between 20 and 60 males on our leks. So there's probably got to be an even number of females. It's about a 50-50 sex ratio in the wild. So, you know, we're maintaining somewhere around 50 to 150, 200 birds. Um, some of our birds did move down to Missouri across the state line into some old leks and pastures down there. And they have a population probably similar there. So, you know, we, we know those two groups are linked because they're only about 20 or 30 miles apart. Um, and we've seen our banded birds show up down there and vice versa. And so they're hanging on. I think they're hanging on because that's the part of the state where we still have the most grassland. We still have pasture and, and hay and cattle down there. And, uh, you know, CRP is, is probably the other thing that's, you know, keeping that landscape, you know, usable by them. Yeah. Um, we had some really bad weather, I think, as everybody remembers, from about, oh, 2007 through 2011. We had five years in a row of pretty horrific weather, and, you know, our pheasants, quail, and even cottontails hit almost all-time lows. And our prairie chickens did, too. Um, you know, they're an upland species, too. And and so we went to Nebraska, and they were gracious enough to let us trap some birds in the sand hills. So we brought some birds back, um, oh, around 2014 to 2016, and let them go on our leks here to augment our population. And because and, uh, we'd gotten down to kind of our low of about 20 males. And we jumped back up to 60, 70 males. And so... We were a little worried about inbreeding, you know, the numbers getting so low and they're not really connected to any of the the, the wild populations that you find in Kansas and, and Nebraska now. So um, <clears throat> they're holding on, you know, but they're not really expanding. And um, is this, so that, you know, that is this solely due to habitat loss or lack of habitat that they're not pretty much okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they just, you know, so we put some satellite transmitters on birds and we brought those birds back from uh, Nebraska, the Sand Hills. You know, it's new technology. Um, we've had radio transmitters since the 60s, but they're, you know, they're truck mounted. They have a range of one to two miles. And so if the bird moves more than that, you can't pick up the signal and you can't follow it. Mm hmm. So, and chickens move a lot, but so we put these satellite transmitters on them, which are picked up by satellites in space, so you always, and we had one bird that we let go around Mount Air that flew west and then south, it flew over St. Joe, Missouri. Oh, wow. Like three counties to the west. And then it went three counties to the south into Missouri and then three counties east of Mount Air. And finally, by the end of that summer, ended back up in Union County, about a county north of where we let it go. That's a big range. I mean, so that, <laughs> that gives you the kind of the scale. Um, you know, prairie chickens are a native species. Um, you know, you think about what Iowa looked like before white men got here, just massive grasslands and, and uh you know, bison and elk grazing across them, and, and they kind of like natives that are grazed a little bit. They don't like tall, rank cover like pheasants do. 
Um, prairie chickens like to see things coming, and then they just fly away. Right. And so they need a little bit shorter grass, and that's what grazing did for them. And and uh, and they moved a lot. I mean, our early accounts from settlers showed that there used to be mass migrations of prairie chickens in a bad winter out of Minnesota, and that they would come down into Iowa by Sac City and just these huge flocks blacking out the sky. And then when winter was over, they'd migrate. So they're almost kind of a little quasi-migratory when the weather got bad. And so just gives you the scale of the landscape that they use, so much bigger than pheasants and quail. And and so that's that, that kind of landscape just barely exists in Iowa anymore. And it's, it's kind of there in south-central Iowa. Like they're hanging on, but they don't really grow. Gotcha. So I kind of want to end this uh, podcast with, you know, basically lending a helping hand. If there's people out there who, you know, they love pheasant hunting or they love quail hunting and they want to volunteer their time to, I guess, um, restoration of habitat or helping with the, some some form of an upland game species. Are there any volunteer opportunities uh, that you guys welcome throughout the year? I think, you know, our biggest partner would be Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Okay. Um, you know, those are those are both citizen groups. Um, Pheasants Forever in the state, God bless them. They've got, um, I want to say, at least 10 to 12, if maybe not 15, farm bill biologists. Um, they work with private landowners on habitat. Now, we have a private lands program within the agency here. And so we have about 15 staff. So all these staff are located out in the county USDA offices. Um, And the reason they're there is that's because where most landowners come when they're talking about their farm, they go to the USDA offices. So our our staff and the PF staff are co-located out there. USDA staff are really good at administering their programs, the programs that USDA does. Um, when it comes to managing wildlife and, and the habitats and, and what critters need, you know, that's not their area of expertise. I'm not blaming them for that because that's, that's not really their job. That's kind of more our job. And so we've got a really good relationship uh, in, in Iowa with our FSA offices and our NRCS offices. And so, you know, that's where I'd say, you know, any, any, you know, direct people there. If you know of landowners that are wanting to improve their habitat or just start new habitat, that's the best place to go um, to get, you know, the correct information. Um, Sometimes the county offices uh, may not have somebody in their office, but, um, you know, just try to contact your local Pheasants Forever person or contact your local DNR person, and, and we can probably get you to the person in that area that has familiarity with that office. And, uh, you know, our staff will go out with landowners and, and work with them on CRP. Or even if it's not CRP, it could be another program like EQIP or WRP. Or, you know, if the landowner just wants to do I don't, you know, I don't want anybody else's help. I want to do it myself. You know, we can, we can give them recommendations. And uh, the chapters usually, most chapters do have money that, uh, that they can help assist landowners. Um, we have a seed program where we can help certain landowners with the cost of native grass seed. Cool. 
Cool. Wow. Tons of great information on this episode. Um, if anybody has any uh, questions or wants to find out more information about the Department of Natural Resources, where should we send them? Um, I would go to our website, uh, www.iowadnr.gov. Um, and then just uh, once you get to our main page there, just kind of click on um, Habitat for Landowners or uh, Land Conservation. Can't remember exactly what our title is there, but um, even if you click on uh, pheasants when you come to our page, and I think on there I've got a link that takes you over to some of our programs where we describe some of our safe, and then we've got maps of uh, you know where our private land staff is, so you can find out who your local person is. Um, good resources right there, and and good contact information there as well. Cool. There's information about our walk-in program there. You know, our our walk-in program is based on we help landowners with their habitat and pay for some of it in exchange for us doing their plan and paying for some of it. They allow public hunting on it. So that's another great tool for landowners that um, have habitat and are willing to let folks hunt on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Todd, hey, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for uh, dropping a lot of knowledge on us today. And... uh, uh, you know, like I like I've said the last couple times, man, really appreciate what the Iowa Department of Natural Resources does throughout the year. Uh, they're a big help, you know, when maintaining the the animals that we love to hunt and even fish and and all that stuff. So thank you very much, and uh, we'll talk to you again. Okay, thanks, Dan. And there you have it. Huge shout out to Todd for taking time out of his day to hop on the podcast and chat with us. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day uh, to listen to the Iowa Sportsman podcast. If you haven't already, go to iTunes, leave a review, go to iTunes and subscribe or wherever you download your podcasts and uh, subscribe and follow along. That way these podcasts come directly to your phone. And uh, if you guys want to find out more information on how you can become a volunteer for the Iowa Department of Natural Resources and maybe give back a little bit, uh, just go and contact your local conservation office, uh, locate, uh, you know, talk to your local Department of Natural Resources office, and uh, I'm sure these guys have something that you can do to help. Um, so just go and, and ask and, and participate. And I think that's a, that's a big thing. Other than that, huge shout out to our partners, Bondurant Custom Furniture, and be sure to follow along on Facebook, uh, the Iowa Sportsman uh, Facebook page. Be sure you're checking into the Iowa Sportsman magazine and be sure that, uh, or subscribe to the Iowa Sportsman magazine. And also be sure you're checking into the iowasportsman.com website and their blogs. There are tons of information uh, between the podcast, the magazine, and the website. There's a ton of great information. So hopefully everybody has a great rest of your week. Happy 2020. And uh, we will talk to you when we talk to you.